Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Matt Heitzman onto the podcast. Matt actually was a professor of mine when I was at Lebanon Valley College. He was an evidence-based instructor, uh, taught some evidence-based courses, and here I am talking with Matt today about evidence-based practice. What does it mean? What does it look like? And how can we implement that on the PT side on the day-to-day? So, Matt and I have a great discussion today, and I know you're going to love this episode, so enjoy. Matt, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, sure. I'm excited uh, excited to get going and, and good to kind of catch up on a, an LVC, Lebanon Valley College PT alum and see what you're up to and hear, hear all the good things you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate it. It's been great to chat with you so far. For people who might not be familiar with you, or maybe they haven't heard of your work at the LVCPT program or other places in the world of orthopedic PT, <laughs> would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, yeah. Well, that could be uh, quite the story, so I'll try and get to the main main highlights of it. So I've been a uh, University of Scranton graduate uh, physical therapy program with a bachelor's degree back in the day in 1990. Um, and then uh, went on after working about five years to get a master's degree in information science um, back in 1998 from Penn State University. Uh, thinking was this this computer stuff might be something at some point, and I should learn a little bit about it. Uh, so I often got a master's degree to kind of combine that with my healthcare experience. Um, did the transitional DPT uh, through Temple University, a great program there. Um, and then since then, over the last 30 plus years, uh, it's just been working as a physical therapist. So, um, you know, probably the areas that I excel at or have the most interest in are, are orthopedics, um, uh, chronic condition management, chronic, chronic persistent pain management, uh, complex cases. Um, but I've worked across all fields of physical therapy and, and you know, maybe we can talk about that a little bit of, you know, as a profession there, there's, it's just fantastic of, you know, just the opportunities you can kind of create for yourself. If you're, you know, willing to just kind of say, yes, I've dove in and currently working on an independent contract with a local school district doing pediatrics. Um, and then, uh, you know, our other part of my day is coaching some runners and triathletes and then also uh, working with some kind of chronic persistent pain clients. Um, so I've done kind of the, the whole smattering of, of things, which I think it all kind of contributes to being a physical therapist. Definitely. It certainly seems like you've covered everything there, Matt. But, you know, the one thing I'm surprised you didn't bring up is you didn't brag about yourself in a certain manner that I expected <laughs> you to mention. So I'll brag for you. You're too All humble. Right. Um, you're one of the few people I've met who was an or- orthopedic clinical specialist, board certified, and then didn't renew and then decided, you know what, I'm going to get the certification again. I liked that exam so much. I'm going to take it a second. <laughs> um, you're one of the few people I found who has done that. And that is very impressive to me because I found a lot of people get it. And after about 10 years, they say, you know what, I don't need this anymore. Um, but I, I like the fact that you went out there, I think just last year and renewed yeah. it. That uh, that shows a certain level of dedication that I know most of us don't have. <laughs> well, it, it you could call it dedication. Some people might say I'm stubborn. Um, 
you know, I'd, I'd gotten it back in 1998. Uh, one of my classmates, it was actually kind of on a, you know, she, she bullied me into, into doing it cause she was taking hers. Um, and she didn't want to pass and didn't have to go all the way out to Seattle for CSM to get her award. Um, so she's like, you, you do it. So I went and, you know, didn't really prepare very much. Um, and somehow I managed to get a passing score and held that for 10 years. And then realizing it was probably, you know, earlier than anybody was really paying attention to anything like that. Um, didn't change anything in my job. Uh, none of my employers recognized it. Certainly patients, clients didn't really care or recognize it. Um, so there really wasn't a lot of value in kind of putting in the time and effort to do the renewal. And then, you know, through, uh, the last couple of years, um, you know, people would look at kind of my background and wonder, how can you work in outpatient orthopedics? You know, you don't, how do you know what you're doing? You're doing home care and then you're doing pediatrics and you're doing cardiopulmonary and hospital care and all these different things. Um, so I said, you know, I, I can still do this and I had to prove a little bit to myself and, and went out and, you know, kind of prepared with uh give a shout out to the orthopedic uh, academy with their their preparation book um you know that was kind of the core of everything i did with it and somehow the score came back and and uh it was a winner so see now if i can keep up with all the the other uh new requirements over the, that you have to do every every couple of years here to keep it going but it was uh, it was an interesting experience. I learned a lot about kind of the thinking a little bit of where orthopedics physical therapy is right now. Some surprises with it in terms of what was on the test, and and kind of a little bit uh, surprised by some of the things that maybe I thought should have been on the test. That's always an interesting topic, and while I don't necessarily want to dive into the OCS exam by any means, <laughs> I do want to talk about this concept of evidence-based practice because yeah. as you mentioned, you've seen over three decades of physical therapy. Um, I, I, I'm i gonna go there. That's longer than yeah. I've been alive. <laughs> That's um, all right. I'm so still processing have, that. Yeah, You have a lot of knowledge and experience in the world of PT from a variety of different angles, as you mentioned, and you've seen some very complex cases. You've seen the evolution of PT over the past few decades. And this concept of evidence-based practice continues to get thrown around a lot. And I find that a lot of times people's definition of evidence-based care or evidence-based practice is kind of misunderstood. So when you hear that term, what do you usually think of, or how would you define, define what evidence-based practice would be? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think, you know, I still hang on and, and maybe this is, you know, outdated, but I still hang on to kind of the original Sackett, uh, you know, definition of, uh, clinical expertise of the of the therapist, um, the best research that's out there, um, and then the part that often is forgotten about and that really I've learned over the years to put much more weight on is that patient values and preferences. So it doesn't matter if you know the clinical practice guideline says you know to do the manipulation you know for when you see this um, if the patient isn't comfortable with you doing manipulation. Um, you know, so you got to understand kind of where the person that you're working with is coming from, 
their understanding of the problem, their needs and goals. Um, and that's really kind of the, the skill of over time that, you know, if I could go back 30 years and, and you know, put in my effort um, right from the get-go, I probably would have spent more time in kind of that, uh, you know, understanding and communication of the, the person who's sitting across me with, you know, whatever it is, back pain, leg pain, you know, just had a stroke, all, all those things. Because um, that's, that's the hard part, you know, what we do usually is pretty easy, straightforward. Um, you know, there's time, there's things involved, we provide our guidance, but um, trying to get buy-in and then understanding, you know, where that leaves that person you're working with is that, that's really hard. It, it definitely is. And, you know, I, I, I'm still perplexed by this though, Matt, you mean to tell me I can't just look up the clinical prediction rule and say, <laughs> yep, this is going to work. Um, it, it really is a lost art of being able to mm-hmm. communicate effectively with your patient, understand where they're at, where they've been mm-hmm. and where they need to go. And I think that's something that often gets missed in the evidence-based realm is we focus sometimes too much, in my opinion, on the research, the evidence and literature, when sometimes the best intervention for the person in front of you is the one that they can do and not the one that holds up as number one on the EMG study. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the saying, right? The the best uh, home exercise program is the one that they're going to do. Um, so, you know, oftentimes it doesn't matter if you do your choices or this or that. Um, you know, what, what are they going to do? Because um, really you're seeing them, you know, for just a snippet of their life, you know, of their week, um, you know, and, and a lot of what we do kind of relies on kind of them keeping it going when you're not in front of them. Um, and, you know, how do you communicate that and create that compelling story for them that they can understand and get buy-in that you can provide that guidance and help kind of coach them through? Yeah, definitely. And just having the ability to connect with someone early on and get to know them uh, because, you know, PT is a unique field in the sense that we help people restore function and get back to doing things that they might not be able to do when we first see them. Um, Mm -hmm. So getting to really understand where they are and where they need to be, I think is a lost art. And unfortunately, we don't have a clinical practice guideline for every one of those situations. You know, we don't have a guide for getting post-op ACL patient all the way back to, you know, NFL football or, you know, post Broadstrom procedure or uh, post, um, you know, labrum repair back to X, Y, or Z. Like we don't have guides for every single thing, getting back to every specific activity. You know, I think about um, my, my friend, Rob, Rob DeBee, Dr. Rob DeBee, he's a physical therapist, epidemiologist over at Maastricht University, and he's done some great talks about evidence-based practice. But one of his lines is, you know, the, you have the clinical guidelines, but they're, you know, he tongue-in-cheek kind of says they're guide lies, because until you whittle it down as, as an epidemiologist, you know, you're creating the study about, you know, the person who just has back pain, and they only had it for three weeks, and you want to know what that's like. But like, the people we see in front of us in the clinic from day to day, you know, have had back pain for six months. It's their third episode. They're out of work. They have diabetes or pre-diabetic. They might have high blood pressure. You know, all these other confounding factors, um, you know, that the studies, you know, 
kind of weed out and don't talk about. So, and we talked about that in the, in the class at LBC is really, you know, it becomes an N of one. It, you, you have to be able to assimilate that information, take it in for what it's worth as, you know, to help guide you a bit. Um, but ultimately it's like that person in front of you and, and you got to understand it, you know, it's, it's about the patient. Yeah. Ultimately that's where it comes from. It starts with the patient and it has to be patient centered, patient focused, whatever their goals are, whatever their abilities are and whatever they're comfortable with allowing you to do. You mentioned it initially when we started talking about this is some patients might not be comfortable with manipulation for whatever reason. Others might not love dry needling. Others might not like pupping therapy. There's a variety of different interventions that you know, we have at our disposal that patients might not like. And, you know, I don't think it's our place to force those on someone, even if they might work for them. I think it's better to meet people where they're at and offer them what they feel yeah. is best for them, even if you might feel otherwise, or you might have an article that cites something differently. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, we have, you know, as you gain more experience, um, you know, you develop this wealth of skills uh, and, and what you come to realize is there's not the silver bullet, you know, just because they might, you know, the, the research says this is the thing to do. Well, you know, especially in physical therapy world, nothing is particularly compelling. Um, you know, there's nothing that says, you know, do this on people with back pain and they're all going to get better. Well, you know, some of them do. Um, but we also know that, you know, you could, you could do, you know, not do manual therapy on somebody with back pain and you know what, they get better. Um, you know, so you have to have that flexibility uh, and that is another element that when I think about evidence-based practice is kind of being, um, you know, flexible, uh, having that ability to kind of understand the situation, be flexible. What are the things that are at your disposal? Um, how would those apply? What are the potential outcomes, pros and cons of it? And then you're providing that uh, information back to the patient, you know, in a way that kind of guides them and helps them make good choices. But ultimately, it's you know, it's their choice, um, and you have to you have to respect some of that. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel that assumptions are made as part of evidence-based care when working with a patient and? Um, do you feel like most clinicians are aware of the assumptions we make um, <laughs> while we're working with a patient? Or do you feel like we just kind of fill in the dots as we go and put the pieces together? Yeah, that's the thing I struggle with all the time, that realization of like, I have biases that I'm aware of, and I have biases that I don't even know, that, you know, I don't have awareness of, that, you know, from time to time, a patient or, you know, person I'm working with will call me out on. Um, you know, and I have to accept that and acknowledge that, uh, and, and, and also kind of tell my patients that too. I'm like, look, I, you know, I, I look at things a certain way and, and, uh, you know, this is how I see it and, and, and tell them why, um, you know, and helps me being honest about the situation, uh, and, and my skills and what I can do to help them with and what I can't, um, you know, cause there's so much information out there with, for people, um, from media and social media and television and everything else under the sun, um, that you're competing with that, you know, we're also affected by that. Um, and you have to kind of accept that, 
you know, where you're at, where you're coming from and kind of talk through and, and, you know, give it that, uh, you know, just be honest about it. And, and that's another piece, I think, is just that clinical honesty that you have with yourself and with, with the person, your, your client. And that's sometimes kind of difficult, or at least it has been for me. Um, you know, it's it's not always easy to look at someone and say like, hey, you know, just so you know, you're going to be the first one I've rehabbed with this condition. Or, hey, you know, just so you know, um, I'm not 100% sure where we're at right now. I've never been in this situation before. Um, but what I've found is, and this is one of those cliche terms about people don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, mm -hmm. At least in my own experience, as long as you're upfront and open to telling people like, hey, I don't know everything, but I'm going to do the work and put in the effort to figure out what we need to do and how we're going to get there. Um, as long as you do that, I found most people are okay with it. They're open to it. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of times they actually respect it more than you just being you know, the guy who knows everything, you've got it all under control, you've got it all figured out, <laughs> done it a million times. And next thing you know, you find yourself in the middle of a dumpster fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. I mean, I, you know, when I first started practice, uh, back in the 90s, you know, it was the mentality was everything that came through the door, um, you know, didn't matter. So, you know, I, I can remember, you know, having a patient with a chronic shoulder problem who, you know, they wanted to do surgery, but he didn't want to get surgery. Um, but the confounding factor was he was deaf. Well, I, I never had a class and, you know, working with somebody with hearing impairment. Um, but, you know, we, we figured it out and, 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 you know, was able to help him. And, you know, one of the advantages I have a, of kind of having my own independent contract um, practice and seeing private clients is, you know, I, I say, no, you know, I'm not the guy for, for everybody. Um, but I also have to be willing to help them connect through and navigate through the healthcare system and get them in front of the right person. Um, you know, and, and that's just, uh, you know, such a better place to be in sometimes, you know, I've worked in kind of the big box, you know, facilities where no matter what you didn't send somebody away or send them somewhere else or whatever god you know you you tried to figure it out and sometimes it's just hey you know like i know dan he's like an expert and you know he just did this class in dry needling i i have no idea so well, let's go send you to dan um you know so you have to be willing to do that and and you know it's probably a little bit easier these days than it was long ago um but, you know, it's still hard to kind of understand, like, what's in your wheelhouse and, and you know, who you can help and, and uh, you know, sort of that recognize, recognize your shortcomings and defeat early, but, you know, be ready to move on and give somebody else that victory to, you know, send them off to somewhere where, where they can get help. Yeah, I love that. And um, that's something I find a lot of people are not willing to do. Um, and I, I liked your point too about recognizing your shortcomings because we as a profession have changed and evolved drastically over the past few decades. Um, and if you don't believe me, um, flashback 30 years ago, see if you can find pictures online and see how many clinics had ultrasound units everywhere. Oh and my goodness. Yeah. Pull up pictures or walk into a clinic now and 
see how many yeah. you see uh, in the clinics. You know, they're yeah. they're kind of, or at least in the clinics I've been in, they've been disappearing. Yeah, um, one, one for, of the classes, first classes I was an adjunct uh, teaching um, was filling in for somebody who was on on sabbatical was teaching modalities course. So I was <laughs> diving into ultrasound and diathermy and you know stuff you probably never even heard of anymore. Um, so I was pretty up on it and I got to the end of the course and I was like, man, this is just crap. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. Um, there's no evidence for it at, at all for anything. Um, and honestly, like if I walked in somewhere and had to do an ultrasound on somebody, like, I, I don't think I could do it. I don't, I'm, you know, I would, I would have to, you know, throw up the white flag and let somebody else do it. Cause I, I haven't touched an ultrasound or any of that's for I don't know, ages, ages. Yeah. Ages. Yeah. No, I, um, I don't even know if I'd know how to turn the machine on anymore. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where our profession has changed and evolved, but we have to be willing to be open about that and accept that, you know, we can't be using ultrasound one day and then the next week turn around and bash ultrasound. We've got to yeah. admit like, Hey, this is where we once were. This is what we thought we were wrong. Here's yeah. what we're doing now. Um, and that sort of thing is common practice and standard in the healthcare system. Surgeons change techniques all the time. Um, I've seen great surgeons who slightly disagree over certain things like, you know, should an ACL reconstruction be given a patellar tendon graft or a hamstring graft right. or maybe the quad tendon graft? Um, so I think that we as PTs need to do a slightly better job of accepting that, hey, we're not perfect and that things are going to change and evolve. And that's part of evidence-based practice is it's constantly changing and evolving over time. Yeah, I think it, you know, comes down and I'll steal, you know, the pop culture from Ted Lasso about, you know, my favorite scene from that was when he talks about being curious, not judgmental, um, you know, and I, you know, I try and play that in my head, uh, you know, through the day when I think about care for clients and patients is, you know, what, what's really going on here? What can I do? And, and being curious about it. Um, and just as, you know, a professional identity of kind of like, you know, always moving forward and trying to understand what we have in front of us and what's available. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I like that point. Where do you think the evidence fits into evidence-based practice? Where do you think the research articles and RCTs and case studies and CPGs and all that stuff, where does that kind of filter in? And, you know, are there, is there value in some of the quote unquote lower level evidences like the case studies in your opinion, or are you going straight to your RCTs, meta-analyses, that sort of thing? Yeah, so as a busy professional like you, right, the question is, where do I put my time? You know, <laughs> there's information everywhere, right? It's information right. overload. You know, I, I used to, I can remember working on, you know, putting together conferences and, and courses on the shoulder and back and things like that. And I just hunker down in the library with, you know, a sandwich and, and some water and, and, you know, I'd be there for a weekend, just like piling through all the, you know, hard copy and photocopying stuff. Um, now, you know, I don't have to leave my couch. Um, you know, you just have access to everything. So it becomes what's in, what's important. Um, you know, I, I think you, you have to go through and, and, you know, I get, you know, the, the main journals within physical therapy, I, I scan through them. Um, 
you know, and honestly, there there's so few that studies these days that really kind of change how I think about things. You know, it takes a lot to, you know, create something compelling that's going to like, man, I'm, I got to, you know, I've been going this one direction with something and I got to go a completely other direction with it. Um, you know, it, it, we had this talk a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to set this up, I know about, about dry needling and yeah, I, I think, you know, sure. could be, could be useful, could be valuable. Am I going to do it? Probably not. Cause you know, I have a bunch of other things that, you know, and from my information and what I understand, um, are just as effective, um, or, you know, pretty darn close without having the same level of commitment to, you know, to, that you get with something like dry needling. So, you know, it, it it's kind of understanding where where the evidence is, what the value is, and does it really kind of shift or, you know, move the needle for you? Um, you know, and there's a few things that I think, you know, it's hard to do research and the types of things um, that we do as physical therapists. I mean, we all know the, the big players in, in physical therapy research. Um, you know, Julie Fritz comes to mind as kind of, you know, main person in orthopedic anything doing research and, and there's others out there um you know but like how much of it really changes what what we're doing because it's it's hard to get enough numbers of of patients to do really good studies and we you know we're trying to set up these networks um you know to to do uh you know bigger numbers and and to try and get other large healthcare systems to kind of network and share data. Um, you know, I worked in the insurance industry and workers comp for about five years and we had, you know, tens of thousands of, you know, data elements. Um, and man, it was an uphill battle to get access to it, to, to get stuff out there. Um, you know, so I think we have to be comfortable with a lot of the studies, most of the studies we see in JSPT or PT journal, they're going to be small. They're going to give you an idea or a different way maybe of thinking about it a little bit, but it's probably not enough that's going to like, you know, most of the time really change, change what you're doing, um, you know, but you got to keep your eye on it because every once in a while there's something that comes out where, you know, it, it just kind of shifts, shifts the thought process. Yeah, no, definitely, Matt. There are some things that certainly change what we do and some other things that you know, we look at them and it's like, okay, that reinforces what I'm doing, but I'm not going to change anything. Or maybe, hey, you know, that doesn't really enforce reinforce what I'm doing, but it doesn't show me any better option or better alternative out there. Um, so I like your point about that. And I think one of the most unique takes I've had on this from uh, Rob Butler a few months ago on the podcast was he kind of explained it in the sense of there's a lack of a common language in a lot of right. these things. And I think we in PT fall victim to that ourselves is yeah. the way you describe an exercise is going to be different than the way I do it. So as a result, yeah. it's going to have a different outcome. You know, if I cue one thing and you cue a different thing, that patient might feel something completely different. So I yeah. think it becomes very difficult for us to research things in depth and detail and then apply them on a broad scale when we don't even have a common language to communicate about these different things with yeah i think about two things there one one i'll just you know throw this out there is you know define core right we talk about it all the time what is it 
drives me a little crazy because you know there's no agreed upon set definition um you know we'll set that aside for another talk another day maybe um but really go back to kind of my good friend and mentor roger nelson uh who is kind of one of the main forces in our guide to physical therapy practice and and uh you know there was a time when we didn't have a common taxonomy within the profession like it, it just you know imagine we didn't we didn't have a way to your, your to your point of communicating with each other and nonetheless try and communicate with everybody else in the health community um to understand what we were doing and you know we probably don't spend enough time on that um you know as professionals to go through and and make sure you're, you're up on you know the guide was just updated recently um you know like go back through and go through it and pick it up and and because that's that's our language that's what we have to kind of to help define our profession um you know and because we got to at least communicate with each other uh and kind of you know hold up kind of our value to the rest of the, the healthcare community and to our patients. And, and it all kind of starts from, from that, from having that agreed upon or defined, you know, definitions of the profession itself. Yeah. Yeah. It starts with the common language and the ability to communicate with one another. And then it takes a step further. I think going back to what we just talked about on the research and uh, that sort of side of things here. I think a lot of the research is great, but a lot of it too is slightly vague. Even sometimes the CPGs that I look through, they don't necessarily come out and give you a template for when you have this diagnosis, this is the exercises, this is how you progress. They'll tell you, you know, for PFPS, you should strengthen hip and knee musculature, um, mm -hmm. but they're not going to tell you what exercises to do for that because that's where the art of what we started talking about at the start of this comes in, you know, your ability to connect with your patient, figure out where they're at, and then develop a treatment plan and treatment program for the person sitting in front of you. And, um, you know, at least in my experience, I'm, I'm trying not to be one to throw stones at glass houses in the education <laughs> system. I, I take that term from Brian Cardin, but, um, you know, I, I think that in general, a lot of PT programs, at least in my own experience, have kind of skipped over the exercise intervention side in favor of a lot of hands-on manual therapy type stuff. Yeah, boy, got a hot button for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have to be careful because I could tell some stories and, and you know, we'll, we will protect the innocent or the innocent in, in intention here. Yes. Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, probably the, the most fun I've had as an adjunct, you know, over, gosh, it's been 20 plus years just at LVC, um, along with a bunch of other schools now, but was, was teaching exercise science. Cause I think that, you know, in and of itself becomes one of the core of who we are, you know, if we really are the movement specialists, um, you know, as physical therapists, you know, how did, how does somebody get from A to B and do that efficiently, effectively in a manner that they, you know, appreciate? Um, you're, you're absolutely right. We have to really understand exercise, what that means and, 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 and have that, you know, as fundamental as understanding neuro, as understanding gross anatomy, um, you know, those are really important. I mean, to me, honestly, you know, the manual therapy is is great um but man it doesn't take that long to get good at it like you know it, it's pretty straightforward 
if you know your foundational stuff, if you know your gross anatomy, you know your your neuroanatomy, you understand exercise and, and you know, load and recovery, um, then yeah, then the manual therapy is, you know, it's pretty self-evident then like, you know, which way does the glenohumeral joint move? Well, like, you know, it's shaped this way because I know the anatomy, so it moves this way. So let's let's do it. Um, you know, so I think you're you're absolutely right in in that there's kind of that underappreciation for for kind of those foundational elements of of our being a physical therapist. Yeah, definitely. And uh, taking your point on that a step further, I know this is a evidence based theme discussion, and I don't have any articles or res uh, resources ready to cite on this claim, but you know, I, I just, I can't help but wonder, you know, does the difference between a grade one and a grade two mobilization <laughs> really mean anything? Or, um, you, you know, like, are they even doing what we think they're doing in the first place? Um, don't get me mm -hmm. wrong. I think manual therapy is a powerful tool. I think yep. that it's great that clinicians need to be good at it. But do we really care about some of those subtle differences like grade one versus grade two? Or are we okay with just accepting like, low grade, grade one to two, mid grade yeah. or higher grade, grade three to four, something like that. Yeah, no, we, I went through that, you know, long ago, I can remember in my training of, you know, the four or five, five different grade grading of, of how much force you're applying. Um, when really it was just kind of think about, you know, what's the end result of what you're trying to accomplish. And, and, you know, then think about that person in front of you and, and then, you know, it becomes evident of how, how much force you're going to imply there. Um, you know, I, I think you're right. We, we kind of try and be too precise and too specific about things in ways that aren't really measurable. You know, we could say the same thing about manual muscle testing. You know, are they a three? Are they a three plus? Are they a three plus plus? Um, you know, doesn't doesn't matter. Can can they do what they need to do? Can they get up out of the chair or go up the stairs or you know throw a football sixty yards? Um, my, yes. uh, my favorite one recently has been the addition of the five minus to the scale. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I completely missed the five minus before. Um, it, it's it's amazing how some of those little things kind of get thrown in there. We did a a study. So when I worked with the workers comp insurance company, we looked at three hundred cases. Um, where we had a clean case, meaning that we had a, an initial evaluation and we had a discharge. Um, and the nice thing about, you know, workers' comp is you, your, your goal is defined for you. You know, they're back to work. So, you, you know, you have that preset for you. Um, so it, it allows you to do a lot of things. And what we looked at was just that simple comparison of, you know, if they looked at all these impairments on the initial eval, did they ever look at it again, ever? <laughs> and and the answer is, you know, we started with this, you know, if we we broke it down, did all this work on the shoulder and how many planes of movement on the shoulder could you do and test and had all this. And, and the, you know, we did the initial run on the analysis and it was miserable. Um, you know, we, nobody did anything the second time to get a comparative. Um, so then we said, well, if they did active range of motion, we just left it at that. Did they ever do active range of motion again? And, and even that was, you know, 
you know, woeful of, you know, I think six to 10%, if I recall the numbers um, with it. Um, you know, so that, that's part of kind of evidence-based practice is understanding kind of what's important, what can you measure with any kind of degree of accuracy that, that matters and that matters to the, to the person, to the patient, um, but you got to do it again, right? You, you know, you can't just do it once. Um, you got to have some core things that you're going to track and follow that give you those, you know, mile markers along the path, you know, it doesn't, I know Dr. Nelson used to talk about if you're going from Philadelphia to New York City, well, you know, there's a dozen ways you could go. doesn't really matter. You're going to end up in New York City, but, you know, like you got to know, like you're on the, on the road, you're on the, you know, you're getting to the exits, you're hitting the mile markers. So you got to track those things as you go. Um, and again, you know, as you alluded to, it's probably an underestimated or underappreciated piece of being an evidence-based clinician is, you know, having that foundational understanding, what we're going to measure, why we're measuring it, why it's important, it's communicating that to the patient. Um, and then you got to continue it. You got to stick with it. Um, you can't just throw in other stuff. Yeah, and be consistent every time you do it. So if you're going to take a measurement of quad circumference, do it in supine every time. Don't yeah. do it supine once and then standing the next time. You know, keep yeah. it consistent. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I know there's been a lot of technological advancements lately, including like digital goniometers to help try and improve mm -hmm. our accuracy on some of those objective measurements. Do you see them being kind of like the future of objective measurements or do you yeah. think there's nothing better than the time-tested original goni? You know, I, you know, you gotta be fast um, and efficient and, and understand the accuracy of what you're doing um, and what's important. So, you know, honestly, I mean, I had my goniometer out just this past week for probably the first time it took me a little bit to dig it out and find <laughs> where it was in my bag. Um, you know, and somebody with a, a, you know, an elbow fracture that they never got treated. And now here we are 12 weeks later and they're, you know, 15 degrees short of extension. So there was a, a real purpose of why I, you know, brought that out because I wanted the patient to understand you know, here's your non-injured side and look, this is where it is. And I could hold up the goniometer and show them. And then here's where your injured side is and hold that up and give them that, that real visual and then say, okay, we got to go, you know, that 15 degrees, that means it's going to watch the arm. It's going from here to here and, and give them that visual and help them understand that. Um, so that's where I find those things are valuable. But most of the time I'm like, can you touch the top of your head? Can you touch the back of your head? You know, like, what, what can you do functionally? Can you get it up overhead? Um, you know, especially with the spine, I'm probably just providing some estimates of, you know, it's restricted and painful or it's not restricted and pain-free. Pain um, you know, how far is it supposed to go is, you know, up for debate sometimes. It's a matter of how far does it have to go for them to do what they want to do. So, you know, how am I measuring that? I don't know that it's quite so important with some of the, some of the technology um, you know, I, I've gone back and forth about getting myself, a, you know, like a, a, a manual muscle tester, you know, digitized, um, you know, but 
I, I don't know that it adds adds so much to to what I look at and whether it becomes important for at least for the patient clients I do. Yeah. No, I love your point on you know just the general things. Where can we move to? Do we have restrictions? Is it painful or painless? Is it strong or is it weak? Is it strong and painful or is it weak and painful? Um, adding those kind of things into it. And the one thing I wish I did when I was uh, just out of school and measuring and tracking some of these things in my first evals is I didn't pay attention to medications. So what oh, I meant by that, I would ask about it in relation to like the medical stuff. But when it came to the pain side, you know, I'd have people on eval who were moving without pain. But guess what? An hour before they came in there, they uh, they, they took Loaded a few up. things. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. you know, we do our progress report 10 visits later. And what do you know? It hurts. But guess what? They're not taking the medication anymore. So is it a is that a failure of me as a PT? Is it a success of me as a PT because they're not taking the meds anymore? Um, you know, and that's up for debate. But that's one thing that I wish, like for myself, that I paid attention to more when I was starting out there with that sort of thing in the ortho realm. Um, right. I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, we look at objective measures all the time to show progress. And mm -hmm. as according to a lot of evidence practice, that's what we need, objective improvement. But I feel like there's a lost art on the subjective side, kind of like we alluded to earlier. The patient kind of has to be the focus. And sometimes we see objective improvement, but the patient doesn't feel any better. And mm -hmm. what do we do then? Yeah, yeah. I, I can think of, you know, a couple cases, one in particular of, of a client at a, a, you know, chronic pain clinic I, I worked at for a number of years where, you know, pretty horrific uh, injuries. So she's sitting at an intersection on her way to her, her accounting job in the morning and uh, a dump truck in front of her, um, the dump starts to lift up and like dumps like a ton of stone onto her car. Um, and she was trapped and, and, you know, for a couple hours and, and it was pretty horrific, traumatizing. Um, we had her on a multidiscipline chronic pain program, seeing psychologists and, and the whole nine yards, everything for eight weeks. And she clearly, she's doing everything. I mean, she's doing like four or five hours of activity through the day in her clinic with everybody. Um, and go to do the, the reevaluation. And it's just like, it, you know, you alluded to, uh, you know, she doesn't think she's better. And, and we're like, you know, that, that's where you got to go. Remember, we picked up this box when, on day one and tried to pick it up off the floor and you couldn't do it. And now we, we got 30 pounds in this box, you know. So, so those are the types of objective measures, you know, that can be helpful. But, you know, you have to help that patient perception of where they're at and what they understand. And, and sometimes we see people who go through, you know, really traumatizing episodes um, it takes a while for them to kind of get, you know, not just physically heal from, but mentally recover from, um, and that's part of it. And that's where your objective measures to help them understand become more, more important, not just in, you know, Hey, they can, you know, lift this now and, and, and all those types of things, but helping them understand kind of, you know, you are stronger, look at, you know, where you were, and that's, again, where you have to be precise about your initial test 
um, and even descriptive so that you can repeat those conditions again later on, you know, to your point of, you know, what was the time of day, um, you know, what medications and, and accounting for all those things. And that's kind of that, again, a little bit of those nuances of sort of being that, you know, expert clinician and having that understanding of things. It's amazing how we call the field physical therapy when in reality, the mental side has so much to do with it, isn't it? Yeah, um, if I could have spent more time on that back in the day, I, you know, probably would have saved myself a lot of, a lot of work and effort. Um, yeah. And sometimes a lot of the mental challenges we find that might lead someone to report, Hey, I don't feel like I'm getting better um, to me anyways. And what I'm seeing on a clinic side right now, I think some of it comes from the nature of the rehabs, right? Like I've got 13 uh, patients who are ACL patients on my caseload right now. Um, so it's like you look at you know the average length of rehab for someone recovering from an ACL tear. I mean yeah, that's a that's a long, long time. Yeah, it's so. longer than anyone will tell them. That's usually what I say. It's longer than your physician will admit to. It's longer than anyone will tell you. Um, and and we see that in kind of that high reoccurrence rate um, with things that has to be some of the factor, you know. Uh, you know, they see these athletes, professional athletes. Um, we're dealing with that with Philadelphia Phillies now. You see Bryce Harper coming back from his ulnar collateral tear, you know, in record time. Um, well, you know, he's not really, I mean, he's back, but he's not throwing. And, and he's got a road to go yet. And, and most of the evidence and experience you see, it's like these things take a long time. And, and that's where kind of that mental you know, those coaching aspects of, you know, keeping them motivated, keeping them focused, being with them for those, you know, inevitable ups and downs that they're going to have. Um, you got to have that in your skill set. And, and as you said, you have to recognize those things, you know, where are they at today? And what can I do to kind of keep them motivated and positive? Even if I'm not having the best of days, you know, my day can't become their, you know, my bad day can't become their bad day. I, you know, you got to, takes a lot of energy and brain power to kind of keep that, you know, clients like that moving. So ultimately, while we've discussed a lot in almost an hour so far, we've really just tipped the iceberg and the world of evidence-based practice is ever-changing, ever-evolving. And unfortunately, there's not really one right answer to everything. But, you know, I think as we've talked about the importance of listening to your patient, the importance of being open and honest, the importance about trying to stay up to date with things as much as you can and recognizing what you do know and what you don't know and when to call for help when you need it are probably the biggest things that come to mind for me. Do you have any other kind of takeaways or thoughts or remarks that you uh, can think of or anything that we might have missed today? Yeah, I'd, I'd just say, you know, sort of touched on it is that important piece of, you know, you got to have your network of people. You got to have your mentors. Um you know, I, I wouldn't be anywhere without the people who helped me along, my, you know, mentors from my powerlifting coach, Jake Boyer, um, who got me into the profession to start with, to Gary, Dr. Gary Mattingly, who, you know, helped my love for anatomy and gross anatomy, to uh, Carolyn Barnes, our department chairman, um, you know, and uh, John Barbas, uh, physical therapist, just master clinician here in the Philadelphia region. And, and of course, you know, Dr. Nelson, um, 
you know, from Lebanon Valley College and who just, you know, uh, you know, changed, changed everything for me. Um, you know, people who gave me opportunities, you, you got to have those people along the way because you can't, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know yet. So if you have somebody who's been there, um, you know, can help you along, answer those questions, keep you accountable, um, you know, listen to your stupid ideas and then tell you to get back to work. Um, you know, you got to have those people in and, and that's part of, you know, what I hope, uh, you know, especially new clinicians um, appreciate, you, you know, you, you got to have a network of people that you can rely on and trust that you can call for those things. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I'll take it a step further and say, don't limit your network to just PTs or yeah. just MDs. Fill your network with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, I had a 40, 45 minute call earlier today with a strength coach in regards to someone I'm working with. And a lot of people look at that and think, okay, wait a second, you've got the doctorate degree. He only has a bachelor's, but I'll be honest with you. I learned a lot from this guy in 45 minutes mm -hmm. on the phone. Um, and I think that, you know, in a world where we value a lot of the degrees and statuses and fancy letters after our names, sometimes uh, there's a lot that can be learned from just talking with other individuals in a similar space to us. Yeah. And I'll give you credit, you know, to, for what you've kind of built here with your podcasts and just, uh, you know, I hope people appreciate kind of the breadth of, of. Uh, expertise that you're willing to bring in, um, you know, from across the board. Um, you're talking to anybody and everybody about what they know, what they think, and, you know, some you can, you know, kind of say, well, that world probably doesn't work like that, but I think it's important to have their perspective um, on things and, and just, you know, absolute credit to you with what, what you're doing. Um, you know, really a, a Credit. Hopefully, LVC or alma mater recognizes you a bit for some of that and, and helps you. But I, I certainly appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you bringing that up here, Matt. And um, you know, like I said before, I certainly don't know everything. Um, and to make sure we we never stop learning and never stop looking for the next thing. And I think it's essential that we all sit down and try and take something away from others' experiences because. Well, we didn't we didn't necessarily get into it a ton. That's kind of the last piece of evidence based practice yeah. is learning from others experiences and trusting expert opinion and where decades of experience comes into the whole process. Yeah, that's that's certainly part part of it. You got to you got to be open and, and we'll just come back to you. you just got to be curious, you know, ask ask questions. Definitely. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. It's been awesome. Yeah, this has been great fun, Dan. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey, everyone. I want to take a second and tell you all about AliRx. AliRx is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio, and you can use the coupon code capital D, capital B, R-A-U-N, capital R, X. So 
DBRONRX at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Braun Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.